Hey guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Isaac Slevin. Um, he is an activist involved in the divestment effort, um, divestment movement at Brown University, and um, is graciously uh, sharing his experience and uh, in terms of that, and I'm sure many of other things. So Isaac, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, how did you get involved in divestment and Brown? For sure. Um, so I'm a sophomore here at Brown. I'm closing out my second year. I'm originally from Evanston, Illinois. And I've always been interested in how educational institutions can advance broader social efforts. So my freshman fall here, or I should say, towards the end of my freshman fall, I got involved with a group called Students Against Coke Influence about the Coke brothers here on campus, mm -hmm. who were, um, there's, this, there's this network of centers for philosophy, politics, and economics around the United States that take Coke dollars, Coke influence. And for me, this was less about preventing the spread of a particular ideology, and honestly, more about academic integrity. Like, especially being at Brown, which prides itself on its open curriculum, on student like students guiding our own education. It's important that we're able to study whatever we want and study things that are interesting to us that give us the tools we want to, in many ways, change the world. Um, and what we had at Brown was a proposed center expansion, this expansion of a center, and they wouldn't tell us who the donors were. Um, and that center at the time that was going to be expanded had taken an immense amount of Coke money and its faculty were broadly affiliated to the Coke movement. So for for those of you who, who aren't aware, the Coke brothers are very conservative and very fossil fuel focused donors, um, influential in politics, the Koch brothers, one of whom have, has recently passed away. Yeah, and thank you for bringing up that fossil fuel connection because of the eight organizers in that group, um, seven of us came at it from a climate perspective because the Koch brothers are prolific climate change deniers. Yeah. Their money comes from Koch Industries, which is an integrated fossil fuel company, um, and have spent an immense amount of money on foundations denying climate change, downplaying climate science, antagonizing climate scientists, working with fossil fuel companies on PR campaigns to influence the public, teaching high schoolers and college students um, that climate change isn't something to be worried about. And so that campaign came to a close in May, and Brown still didn't have a climate activism group. Um, across the U.S., climate, or uh, I mean, the climate movement in particular, you can see this with the sun movement, for example, but generally activist movements were really hurt by the pandemic and the inability to organize remotely to keep movements together. So Brown hadn't had a climate or climate justice movement since fall 2020. And so over the summer, this past summer, so summer 2022, myself and a few students decided that actually we should fix that and we should, we should create something because Brown is not doing the best it can. It is will call itself a leader in sustainability. There are some really cool projects that Brown has done. Um, they're purchasing these offset credits, which aren't ideal as their, their credits, but 
to reduce refrigerant emissions in India. Um, they are working to purchase solar energy from a local solar farm. At the same time, Brown takes an immense amount of money from the fossil fuel industry in the form of research grants, invites fossil fuel recruiters to campus. Um, so this past January, so we created Sunrise Brown. Um, we were going to create a climate justice group. We decided that affiliating with the Sunrise Movement made sense for our own purposes, but also to have a network, a national network of organizers to share information with, to get help from. Um, and in at the end of February, we launched this campaign we've called DIRE. The DI is for Dissociation from Fossil Fuels. The RE is for Reinvestment in Providence. And yeah, so that, that brings us to, to where we are. We're fighting for, for fossil fuel dissociation, which is not it's sort of a a post divestment way to think about universities relationships to fossil fuel companies we're at a point where a lot of universities including ivy league universities like princeton and harvard have divested from the fossil fuel industry but are still giving the fossil fuel industry that social license to operate are still condoning their activities mm. so a bunch of students are saying hey wait a minute that's not fair that's not right we want a sustainable future that we can believe in and raise our own kids in um and be proud of and universities by by giving the fossil fuel industry the ability to operate unfettered to share climate change denial and disinformation are really tearing that down so that's, that's inter so that's interesting because it really looks at divestment from like a second level of what's actually going on underneath so when did brown actually divest or you know, in terms of its its funds, its uh, endowment, when did it actually divest from fossil fuels? So Brown divested from fossil fuels in 2020, and it did so in a really interesting under the radar sort of way. So whereas other schools made big statements when they divested their endowments from fossil fuels, um, talking about the belief in their students' rights to a healthy and safe future, talking about the moral consequences of not divesting, what Brown did was say that it was a pure financial-based decision, that they were worried about stranded assets from fossil fuel industry. The fossil fuel industry, they were worried about volatility, which you know was very real, and it will continue to increase um, as climate change accelerates and as more governments try to pivot away from fossil fuels. And they also did so, Brown divested its endowment um, over the course of a few years secretly without telling anybody, which mm -hmm. it said was to preserve its own financial position um, to make sure it could it could sell off its assets responsibly with a reasonable amount of return rather than driving down the price by um, announcing that it was going to sell everything all at once. Mm. And this had two implications for us um, as a as a movement and organization pushing for Brown to go further. The first is that it, by making it a financial statement and not a moral statement, Brown can continue to claim that it does not act to uphold any particular uh, political belief. So it has claimed rather than being able to say, hey, we believe that fossil fuels are hurting us, or we believe that Brown should not stand for an industry that's that's hurting us and, and hurting a lot of the world. Um, Brown can say, well, we're only doing it when it makes financial sense for us. 
And that gets them off the hook. So when we've had meetings with administrators, they've said that the endowment is not a political instrument. We don't make political decisions with it. We don't make political decisions with who we are associate ourselves with, um, which has made things a little bit tricky and, and had to had we've had to change our tactics a bit uh, because they won't respond to a moral call. Mm. Second thing that that form of divestment did um, is completely discredit student activists. Mm. Brown had a divest coal campaign on campus starting in the mid 2000s, had a fossil free Brown organization, had a Brown divest from fossil fuels organization over time. And Brown got to completely write those organizations efforts out of the picture, neglect, you know, uh, keep out from the historical record that students pushed on administrators, that students held rallies on the main green and public places, invited their own speakers, disrupted university events. Mm. And it's in the university's best interests to prevent students from building power between organizations. So whereas another organization that won divestment might be able to share that as a win and a building block yeah. for future efforts such as dissociation, Brown made sure that that our that climate activists at Brown could not do that. Wow, that's that's um I hadn't heard of that as a strategy that makes a lot of sense from the viewpoint of the fossil fuel interests have has this happened this same kind of strategy been employed at other universities where where this has happened or is it just brown sure so fossil fuel dissociation we do take cues from other universities for sure um as far as we can tell no university has implemented a full dissociation policy as we know it and as we're defining it. We're mm. pulling from what a lot of different schools and also just nonprofit institutions and public institutions in general have done to distance themselves from the fossil fuel industry. So for example, there are four schools in the United Kingdom that have fossil-free career services policies. They've made statements saying that, well, it's important for students to be able to pursue whatever careers they want. Um, also, the university must act in the best interests of its students, and that means refusing to participate in an industry that is lying to people about climate change, mm. uh, and that is hurting students' ability to have job opportunities in the future. So that's that's one pillar of fossil fuel dissociation for us, is that fossil-free career services policy um, influenced by People and Planet, which is this organization in the UK that's helping a lot of these fossil-free career services policies. Another one is creating fossil-free retirement plans. So the divestment movement is often thought of as being a lot about university spaces, but really key movers have been like state pension plans, for example, like the New York yeah. State Pension Plan, um, the entire UC system, the University of California school system divesting. So Brown is a private university, has you know a retirement fund system as opposed to, to public pensions. But still, Brown faculty, if they want to keep their retirement funds out of fossil fuels, they have to build an entire investment portfolio on their own. They can't yeah. just select from a drop-down menu of plans. So there we're taking cues from other 
divestment movements in the past that have affected pensions. Um, and and we're, that's how we're mobilizing faculty as well. And then the third and perhaps most important pillar is fossil-free research. And that pillar is from this international organization we're a part of called Fossil-Free Research, the Fossil-Free Research Organization. And there we take our, most of our cues, or at least the most important ones from Princeton, which wrote and published a report in September 2022 about dissociation from the fossil fuel industry. And for many of us, this was the first time we had heard the term dissociation employed in this way. But faculty, the faculty tasked with writing this report, and I believe it was the Board of Trustees, were thinking about divestment in a critical way of if we believe that it's right to divest from an industry because of its implications on social stability, on ecology, on climate migrants, on people in our communities, on our agriculture system, on all of this, then why are we letting those, those fossil fuel companies into other parts of our university? And so they dissociated from 90 companies, not all fossil fuel companies, just companies involved in tar sands extraction and thermal coal extraction. So that gets a lot of your, your main oil giants, but for example, still omits BP. But that was really key for us because that was a very rigorous faculty-led, faculty-directed, faculty-written report with student input that was mentioned in the report from Divest Princeton, um, commissioned by the Board of Trustees, who believed that this was an important thing for Princeton to do, given its values as an institution of higher education, as an institution interested in the pursuit of knowledge. Um, so we don't think that Princeton went far enough, um, but that's where dissociation comes from. So do, would you view Princeton as kind of the leading uh, institution in terms of this kind of movement at this point, or is it a matter of, is there another institution that is even advanced beyond where they've taken a stand? Yeah. I would say in many cases, Princeton is leading. I would be hesitant to give them too much heap of credit. Yeah. Uh, first, because they were ori originally students and faculty were pushing for fossil free careers and the administration shot that down. Hmm. There's a whole section of the report about identifying disinformation and preventing actors who share climate disinformation. Um, also, to be clear here, disinformation is misinformation with intent. So not just sharing things that aren't true, but they're sharing things you know to not be true. Hmm. Um, and there was a whole report, whole section of the report developing a methodology for determining what climate disinformation looks like, how Princeton might take action against it. And that was not implemented. Mm. So, wow. Okay. Princeton is huge. That report is huge and influenced the release and writing of our own report. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I, I don't want to uphold Princeton as, yeah. you know, our shining star. We're still in the early stages is what you're saying. It's like, we've, we've still got a long, long way to go. I'm, I'm curious. One of the, one of the things that I've, heard from some people is that when I talk about divestment and kind of the influence of fossil fuel companies at, at universities, like Jim, you're just way too conspiratorial. That's not the way that it works. Like you get your, you know, where are the facts? Where's the reality? Because that can't possibly be how things work. How would you respond to that? 
Yeah. I mean, we, we hear that a lot um, because while Brown has taken a lot of fossil fuel money and has hosted fossil fuel recruiters, we are by no means leaders in that regard. You look at your Caltechs, your Stanfords, your MITs, yeah. and Brown looks stellar in regards to some of those schools who are a lot really more dependent. Um, but there are a few different areas in which universities are really key assets to the fossil fuel industry and the fossil fuel industry knows it. So one is direct bias in research. There is a study in uh, the journal Nature about how energy institutes at universities that are funded by fossil fuels produce research that is more favorable to natural gas than energy institutes that are not funded by fossil fuels. Hmm. And that is so damning to the university system and to academic integrity, because it shows that it, it's one thing if ExxonMobil comes out and says, hey, we believe that natural gas is the solution. Even somebody who isn't a climate activist can recognize, oh, well, it's in you know ExxonMobil's best interest to say that. But if Princeton says that, if Stanford says that, it gets a lot more social credibility and fossil fuel companies know that. So and if you and if you don't look below the surface to see what actually drove that research and dig deeper, you're not going to know those connections as a as just a passive reader of something that you see on Bloomberg or something. No, exactly, exactly. And so that's why it, also we've taken it upon ourselves to search out a lot of these connections um because we know that it won't a lot of them aren't apparent um generally to the public so that's probably the most blatant reason is not just the idea that you know research might be contaminated or there might be some bias but actually we have seen it mm -hmm. another reason is uh greenwashing which is that you'll see fossil fuel companies spend less than 1%, in many cases, less than half of a percent of their annual capital expenditures on low carbon technology. And that includes carbon capture and sequestration, but it also includes renewable energy investments and developments, um, solar plants for their own facilities, really things that could be integral to what they do as energy companies. And so you'll have companies like that who are really fighting the green transition as much as they can, um, funding research at universities and gaining public credibility from it. So if you look at ExxonMobil's Instagram page, for example, almost everything they publish is about being a low carbon company, almost everything. <laughs> and what universities allow those companies to do is show off those partnerships. Yeah. So at Brown, for example, we have a lab that works on uh, remediation after chemical spills. And a lot of that work is really important, right? Like whether you have the fossil fuel industry or not, whether that research is funded by fossil fuels or not, it's really important to know how to clean up after chemical spills, how to prevent the spread of pollutants into groundwater. But when that research is funded by ExxonMobil and Repsol and ConocoPhillips, those companies now get to take credit for being careful and being conscientious and demonstrating to the public, claiming that they are understanding the risks of their actions, funding those sorts of solutions. And that's not fair. 
that's not fair to those companies. No, but I, I, I would also, if I knew that, I would also say, like, is this research in terms of if there's a water problem related to a chemical and I see those names listed with it, my first reaction would be, well, is this research really giving an honest evaluation of the impact of those chemicals on nature and and people, you know, like is that research actually worth the paper that it's printed on? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a third category, which is reputational risk. Um, yeah. Brown will talk a lot about academic freedom in our conversations with the administration, that it's not the university's job to police what faculty members study, where they take their money from, um, the jobs that students are exposed to. And, you know, there, there's a lot of truth in that. And, and I we do understand that sentiment. But part of what academic freedom is, is freedom from disinformation, from things that aren't true, from corrupting influences. And even if research isn't corrupted or isn't polluted, when you're working with actors whose business model is dependent on lying to the public and tearing down science, you're bringing in that appearance of contamination. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of faculty members at Brown who have taken fossil fuel grants. I know a lot of them personally, and I think they're really great people. But I wouldn't want for them, their research to not be taken seriously because they're receiving money for BP when they're writing about cleaning up after Deepwater Horizon, right? Or they're taking money from Repsol when they're writing about uh, bioremediation. So that reputational risk is real because there's a lot more awareness, especially in the past few years, about how fossil fuel companies have made a business and made a killing out of lying. Mm -hmm. mm. So you mentioned uh, carbon sequestration, and um, I've seen a lot in terms of the fact that, or the view that carbon sequestration is really a delay and confuse strategy by fossil fuels. It's the effort to say, well, if we can do, if we can figure out how to sequester carbon, then down the road in 10 or 20 years, we can then put that carbon back into the ground and wash our hands of it. But there's really no solution that does that. And the idea is they're promising you something in the future that really has no basis in science. I mean, is is that your group's view or am I completely off base with that? Sure. So carbon capture is a really tricky question for a lot of climate activists because on one hand, we can't escape the fact that we are going to need to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah. On the other hand, it is absolutely in the fossil fuel industry's best interest to uphold carbon capture as a solution because it means that for them, whatever they put into the atmosphere, we can just take right back out. Hmm. I have no problem with universities studying carbon capture if it makes sense from a climate solutions perspective, not because that research agenda has been set for them by the fossil fuel industry. So in terms of impacts of, of fossil fuel money at university, we've talked about greenwashing, right? We've talked about 
research bias. We've talked about the appearance of reputational risk. But another one is setting research agendas. If a university is, for example, opening a sustainable energy initiative or is beginning to invest in, um, let's say, climate solutions, they have like a climate solutions lab of some sort, and they make one of their key areas of study carbon capture because that's where the money is, that is a problem. That is a problem because there are so many better solutions right now that are so much closer to readiness than that. And that yeah. doesn't mean that we shouldn't be investing in it. You know, yeah. I, I don't think that, for example, the Department of Energy is wrong to be setting aside money for, for carbon sequestration. I think it's something that's important for the future. But fossil fuel industries, the fossil fuel industry has done a really great job in making it seem like it's something that we can do in the present. Yeah. Um, well, it diverts in your example of having an institute, which then is focused on climate solutions, it's taking part of the money and part of the talent in terms of the research, diver diverting it into something that is less optimal than an immediate solution could possibly be. And so that's, again, a win in terms of delaying the transition to a, a cleaner economy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it shows how unserious fossil fuel companies are about the green transition yeah. um, because they're not investing, by and large, they're not investing in offshore wind. They're not investing in transmission lines. They're not investing in um, photovoltaic solar panel R&D. And when they are, it's really a drop in the bucket for them. You'll also see companies develop uh, investing in carbon capture to inject that carbon underground to free up more natural gas. Yeah. In which case you are really not having any sort of climate impact at all. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not anti carbon capture all the time, but I absolutely think that we need to be thinking critically about the role it plays in our investments, especially as a university. I mean, one of, one of the, one of the, points that you uh, mentioned in the beginning was the fact that the university divested because they were questioning the, the idea that they didn't want to be stuck with sunken assets and that they were unprofitable investments and they wanted to quietly get rid of them. And, you know, I applaud that because the fact is, you know, in that time between 2010 and 2020, when there was the, you know, fracking boom, it was basically oil companies kept going to Wall Street. They had unlimited access to money, but it was it was money losing money. And, you know, it ended up costing endowments and institutions a lot to have them keep coming back, getting more money and basically flushing it down the down the hole. So, you know. Congrats on them being able to see that. But the reality is that there's still the reality of those sunken assets that at some point are going to be worth nothing. And, you know, we're in a world where we need to make that transition faster. And in many ways, I do believe in speaking the language of the university, whatever it wants to hear. Um, if it takes appealing to 
the financial interests of the university to win what is ultimately a pro-climate policy, that's mm. fine, mm-hmm. right? And Brown has proven that it will do very little in the actual interest of sustainability and the climate. Mm. So for our messaging, we've been working on what can a university, what would a university listen to? And that's why we've been thinking a lot about these questions of academic freedom and integrity of the risk that Brown's research incurs by being fossil fuel affiliated. And one thing here that I, I'm sort of hoping could be a catalyst for broader adoption of fossil fuel association policy is disinformation. And universities uniquely are interested in the pursuit of truth and knowledge. They have grandiose mission statements about, especially the Ivies, the ones that take themselves way too seriously, about what a university is for. Meanwhile, the fossil fuel industry you know, isn't just not telling the truth, has engaged in a decades-long public relations campaign to polarize climate science, to demonize climate scientists, to downplay the effects of climate change with really stunning accuracy. I mean, it's been horrifically effective. Um, for those of you interested in reading more about it, Naomi Oreskes wrote a book called Merchants of Doubt about how, Naomi Oreskes and, and Eric Conway, um, about how the fossil fuel industry and the tobacco industry have shared a lot of the same tactics and a lot yeah. of the same actors. And that is thoroughly incompatible with a university's mission to help its students learn things and develop mm-hmm. skills and be exposed to different ideas because this isn't ultimately about a difference of opinion. These, In many ways, these aren't policy questions. These are fact versus fiction. Mm-hmm. So when ExxonMobil comes to Brown's campus as they did in October to claim, uh, mm, it was a, it was October or November, to say that they're being part of the renewable energy solution, that they're meaningfully transitioning, that is a lie. That is flat out a lie. That's not just a university, you know, or that's not just a fossil fuel company twisting things to be a little bit more favorable to it. No, that is speaking the language that it knows it needs to speak to remain culturally relevant and a culturally legitimate institution. So then you'll look online at job postings on Handshake, which is this website that that Brown uses to connect students to employers, and you'll have BP saying it's leading the way in investing in low-carbon solutions. That's another lie. BP rolled back its carbon emissions reductions targets in February because of record oil profits. So in the same way that the financial implications of not divesting were integral to the divestment movement in the 2010s and remains so to this day, I'm cautiously optimistic that the implications of not distancing themselves from disinformation of lies, that those consequences will push universities to sever themselves from from the fossil fuel industry in what is ultimately a pro-climate move. And if it takes us speaking the language of disinformation, of untruths, um, as opposed to making what is a climate an argument that centers the climate then we're happy to do that Mm -hmm. um because ultimately we're students too and our faculty allies are doing research too and it's important to us that our universities are are free from lies and that students aren't being exposed to things that are only being spread so that the fossil fuel industry can continue to make money so how would how would uh you say that the structure of coursework like 
in terms of you're a student, you go to Brown, the exposure that a student has to um, climate facts and like the climate reality from a scientific and especially a moral philosophical point of view is compared to courses that are disinformational. Like what's the balance there? Is it, is it an even number? Is there more of the disinformation? Is there, is there more hope in terms of people actually pursuing climate reality, understanding the climate reality? I'm just sure. curious. Yeah. So we don't see disinformation in our curriculum and we're pretty lucky about that. Hmm. Um, or I'm not sure about lucky in comparison to other schools, but it's, we feel good that that's a battle that we don't have to fight individual segments of the university, um, such as our department of earth, environmental and planetary science or deeps, which is basically geology had a reckoning has had a reckoning over the past 20 years or so with their relationship to the oil industry, because commercial geology is oftentimes, most often oil exploration. And so it's been really great to be able to have conversations with faculty members in deeps or in the department that hosts the environmental science concentration or with environmental engineers to have these conversations with people who have been thinking about this for a long time. Mm -hmm. So in terms of of ratio of like climate solutions versus disinformation, we really don't see the effects of the fossil fuel industry in our curriculum, uh, which is wonderful, but it is those extracurricular opportunities. It's, um, for example, it could be those recruiting events where we had ExxonMobil and Schlumberger, it was now known as SLB, which is an oil field services company, which, yeah. um, helps keep oil rigs, you know, uh, clean and, and operational. So we had an info session with them. We have research grants. And I want to be clear with research grants. This isn't an indictment of faculty members pursuing something that isn't true in order to get paid. Like we have a lot more faith in our faculty members at Brown than that. But it really comes down to asking the questions that the fossil fuel industry wants you to ask or studying a particular segment of something that makes the harms look understated. So that's what's been tricky about disinformation. And I've kind of had a crash course in it over the last probably year and a half um, about it. But what's really great about identifying disinformation is that it's a burgeoning field with increasing amounts of scholarship about it. So mm -hmm. there's uh, Robert Brule, who's actually a visiting professor at Brown, who's published on what he calls the climate change counter movement or CCCM which is the spreading of disinformation, climate change denial, and climate change delay in think tank ecosystems uh, and tracing particular donors. Again, you'll see the Koch brothers enter here alongside you know, your ExxonMobil's, your ConocoPhillips. And then also the Princeton report developed a methodology for identifying and, and ultimately obstructing climate disinformation, which includes greenwashing as a tactic, not just because disinformation isn't just saying things that aren't true. It's omitting things that help paint a more accurate picture. Mm -hmm. It is true that BP is invested in certain renewable energy programs. It is true that Equinor is invested in offshore wind in New England. But you're creating an intentionally incomplete picture when you say that 
when you omit the part where those companies are ultimately contributing to the destruction of our planet to tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of climate refugees, to record heat waves, to intense tropical storms. So that's sort of the, the yardstick. Those are the yardsticks that we've been able to use for identifying disinformation, but ultimately it's not in curriculum. Hmm. Um, if people want to learn more about the work that you've done and, and what's going on at Brown, especially I would say if they're alumni, I would assume alumni would have a strong opinion. How could they learn more? For sure. So we're going to launch a new website soon. So I'm not going to give out the handle for that, but we are active on Twitter at sunrise Brown U hmm. and on Instagram as well. But I know that Instagram usually caters to a younger demographic um, than Twitter does. And Twitter is helpful for getting a lot of our messaging out. We do have our report published. We wrote our own report about Brown's connections to the fossil fuel industry. You can find that at tinyurl.com slash fossil free Brown, all lowercase if you want to read some more. But yeah, if you want if you have any questions, if because we really do want to engage people in these conversations, because we know that dissociation is kind of a new thing and kind of a new topic, even if you disagree with us, even if you're not totally sold on it, do uh, you know DM us on on Twitter. We could set up a, a phone call, a conversation about it, have an email exchange about it, and then also if you want to support us, um, we're happy to to set up through there. But we are a student group, and we are a student group that hasn't even been around for a year. And so we're really proud of what we've built in that time, but um, definitely going to direct y'all to, to the Twitter and, and the Instagram for now. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate your taking the time to uh, chat, uh, especially with the uh, end of the semester coming up and I'm sure all the stress and activities therefore. But, um, you know, I look forward to staying in touch and learning about uh, some more of your successes in the years to come. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to, to have me on the show. It means a lot. Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Isaac.